Hello. Hello. I'm Kenna. I'm Koel. Welcome back to Diagnosing a Killer. Woo. Killer, killer. Episode 7. At night. Taking out the trash. At night. No? No. Oh. Oh. I'm a millennial. Actually, I guess we both technically are millennials. I'm a millennial. You're, you're a like, Gen Z. No, I'm not. I'm right on the cusp and you're right on the cusp. I think, what is it? 87 to 96? I don't know. I'd have to Google it. Or no, it would be 89 to 96 and you're 88 and I'm 95. So literally we're both right on the cusp. Oh, there's like a little graph. Hmm. Graph? Graph. Right. Look at this Look- graph. <laughs> Look at this graph. Millennials are 1981 to 96. Yeah, so I'm a millennial and so wow. are you. And Casey is I'm not on the cusp. I'm not I 81. thought you were on the kiss. No offense. But Gen Z, yeah, would be 97 to 2012. So our niece is on the cusp of Jay-Z. Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> and Rihanna. <laughs> our niece is on the cusp of Gen Z. <laughs> Jay-Z. <laughs> Hey, Jay-Z, if you're listening, (laughs) looking so crazy right now. (laughs) Generation Alpha is the next one. That's 2010 to 2020. I don't like that. Your son's in that. Generation Alpha. That sounds so, like, swole. Actually, that makes sense because it's starting over. Gen Z and then Alpha would be the revamp of that. So who would be the original? Was there ever original alphas? I don't know. There's the lost generation that's 1883 to to 1900. I would have been pissed if they named me that. (laughs) What the fuck? The lost generation. Nobody gives a shit. Gee, thanks. Greatest generation. Wow. That's (laughs) That's biased. So big headed. (laughs) 1901 to 1927. And then the silent generation. So was Paul Paul was... I think he was born in like 36, actually. 30, yeah. 36, 39? I don't know. I can't remember. Um, then the silent generation, 1928 to 1934. Ooh, that's kind of or like... Or 1945. Ugly, because that's like the Great Depression and like the wars and stuff. Too. Then the OK Boomers. LOL. They're 1946 to 64. That's mom and dad. Yeah. And Degeneration X, that's 1965 to 1980. Oh. Then Millennials, Gen, Gen Z, yeah. and Generation Alpha. So next is going to be Generation Beta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to go down, down the line. Unless they go with a cool name, go with a cool name like Greatest Generation. Times two. Times two. Or 2.0. More betterer in action. <laughs> so we actually set up the email like we said last time. So if you haven't sent us an email, please do so because I am still looking in that Freaking wind turbine of an inbox that has nothing except for Buzzsprout. You really mean? Empty. Um, we also did set up a Patreon. So we had a number of people asking us if we um, had a Patreon and they wanted to know how they could support us. And that is how. So it's patreon.com slash diagnosing a killer. You can choose. It's like a monthly kind of thing. So you can choose uh, anywhere from $1 up to how much you'd like to submit monthly. And then that gives us an opportunity to create merchandise. And then we'll do like... 
depending on, you know, once we get a lot of Patreons, we will, or patrons, I guess is what they, they're called. Patrons. Um, we will start doing bonus episodes just for them, so you will only be able to ex- access that content if you are a patron, and yeah, so I'm really excited about that. I know, me too. I'm really I feel excited. official. <laughs> it's a fish. Yeah, it's definitely a fish. Like a beta. Gen beta. <laughs> <laughs> Generation beta. So um, we wanted to touch on a couple of things before we get into the case. I think you had a couple of things you wanted to say. Uh, yeah, so it was actually confirmed today that the remains that were found on that wildlife um, preserve was actually Brian Laundrie. So Brian mm. Laundrie has been found deceased. Um, and they, uh, it was the FBI that released the statement and they said that they had, they had compared dental records, meaning that he's probably been out there for a long time. Yeah. So probably since he's left, he's been there since he was reported. I missing. mean, it's been about a month, right? Since he was, yeah, he, I think, uh, the last time that he was seen by his parents was the 14th reported missing on the 17th of September. Yeah. So yeah, it's been about a month, um, since he was last seen. So and they did find, <laughs> Sorry. they did find his backpack and they found a journal of his. Oh. Um, and I know that everybody was saying, or everybody has been saying, Oh, wow, what a coincidence. Like, the parents went out there for the second time since he's been gone. Yeah. Um, And they just so happen to find something. I mean, if that's all you hear about it, it seems super sus. Of course. But um, they had had... uh, This area has been known to flood a lot. Every year it floods. And so they actually had dive teams that were in that... What was, like kind of this reservoir Mm -hmm. um and they but it was also very murky and muddy since it again it's a highly vegetated area so they when they were walking through this time it was because a lot of that water had dissipated Mm. and then that's where they found these remains he was in the water likely um which also can contribute to decomposition and all that other stuff and that's why absolutely that's probably why um and not only that but i mean it's hot outside so especially in florida it's really humid of course so i'm sure that's why they had to identify him through dental records um so i think that that for me at least and everybody has their own opinions but for me at least um i don't think that the parents will ever be charged with aiding and abetting only because if he has been passed away since the last time they saw him then they're likely never going to see the inside of a courtroom for that at least they might have been savvy to where he was going and what he was going to do if he did take his own life and it wasn't wildlife or anything like that um they might have known where he was or his, where his whereabouts were the last time they saw him. Um, as far as I know, they did tell the police officers that when they reported him missing, they knew where he was going, which was that area. Um, I think it's one of the very first places they checked. Yeah. And if that is the case, that they did divulge that information to the police officers, then I don't think they're legally responsible for anything, yeah, honestly. It's just kind of and a... that was before he was a person of interest. Yeah. It's so. just kind of a bummer um, because... Not only did, I mean, they're, like you said, they're probably not going to be able, or not be able, but they're not going to get charged with anything. Um, However, they didn't really do a hell of a lot to kind of help the investigation. They kind of just sat on their hands and waited for things to unfold the way that they did. And so it almost makes me think that either he told them what his plan was, and I don't know why or how as a parent you allow that to happen, knowing whatever, which which makes me think that they didn't know. Maybe he told them where he was going, but he didn't tell them his plan, and maybe he got there and his plans changed because he was overwhelmed with guilt or whatever it was, whatever the case. 
Um, unfortunately, the Petito family is not going to get that, you know, conversation or that closure of why he did what he did. And he's right. the only one that knows that. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, they're not going to get closure in that sense, which really hurts my heart because, yes, they have, I don't even want to say justice. They have the knowledge that he is deceased and they can rest knowing that he's not out there and he's not going to harm anybody else. However... It's nice to have, you know, a little bit of an explanation, which they're never going to get, unfortunately. Yeah, I I think that the only, at least what I might take away if I was in that situation, which, again, I've never been in, so I don't, I'm not one to speak on that, but a little bit of the solace that I would find is I don't have to go through a trial. Yeah. I don't have to listen to the details. Yeah. You know, I think about Chris Watts and all the stuff that he put Shanann's family through throughout an entire trial and hearing the details of their their grandchildren you know being harmed and Mm -hmm. and all all those horrible ways and what he did to them yeah and having to relive that that's got to be so hard and again now they know that he is not out there he is not harming someone um and they don't have to ever I'm sorry, but they don't never have to look at his face ever a fucking again if they don't want to. Yeah. Well, either way, um, our hearts definitely go out to the Petito family. And, you know, as unfortunate as it is, like I said, that they're not going to get that closure. At least they can rest easy knowing that. Well, not easy, but they can, you know, have that little bit of a silver lining that he is not, you know, out there and, and causing harm. So it's, a, it's just hard because, you know... I don't remember a lot of cases growing up where I was actively following it, and mm-hmm. then we learned new information, new information. Yeah. All the cases that I know or that I've researched, you know, have happened way in the past, and so it's, like, it's really a weird thought to be, like, oh, my God, like, this yeah. is happening right now, and it's, like, a nationwide thing, mm-hmm. too, so a lot of people I remember Nicole Brown, um, Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, I remember uh, Lacey Peterson. That was another big one. Lacey Peterson was interesting. Um, I remember kind of following that a little bit. And then, of course, the most recent, Chris Watts. and Jim. Yeah, I, I do remember Chris Watts now that I think about it. But. Yeah, that wasn't too long. That was only like two years ago. Three yeah. years ago, maybe. Now, we're going to get into the case. It took me a little longer longer because uh, there's so much detail in this case. Um, I didn't include all of that detail in here, of course, because of it's a lot. And also, uh, there's some of the details that were very graphic that I didn't feel comfortable relaying over the podcast. However, you're welcome to search that and find it. Um, just to let everybody know, if you are going to search it, I did very easily stumble acro- across some crime scene photos that were very graphic. So if you are going to take it upon yourself to dive farther into this case and research, just you might come across that just to uh, give you a little warning. I'm going to start off like I usually do with the early life of the uh, the person that we're speaking on. And then I'll, of course, trigger warning when it gets pretty bad. So, and I don't even think you know who I'm talking about. I don't. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep it under wraps. I know. You've been, you've been like jonesing about it for days. So I'm, who is it? It's all I've been thinking about for days. If you work with me, um, <laughs> you know that I've been in a weird headspace. She's apologizing. This case is like, it's it's a hard one. Um, so we're going to be talking about Richard Trenton Chase, a.k.a. the Vampire of Sacramento. <gasps> okay. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, don't look at my notes. You're gonna... <laughs> I'm <laughs> so interested. Peeking over at my notes so she can <laughs> okay. see. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, Richard Chase was born on May 23rd, 1950, to Richard Chase Sr., which was, he was a computer specialist, and Beatrice Chase, she was a teacher, in Santa Clara County, California. Now, his dad is also named Richard Chase, so I'm going to refer to him as Senior so we don't get confused mm-hmm. when I talk about When I say Richard, I'm talking about Richard Chase, Trenton Chase, but when I say Senior, I'm talking about his dad. Now, by all accounts, his father was an alcoholic that frequently beat him. We've heard this story before. It happens, unfortunately, very often. 
Uh, it's believed In that cases like this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's believed that uh, Richard started showing signs of mental illness very early on in his life, as early as ten years old, which is really, really resonant. It says something uh, considering the fact that he was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and that oh, does wow. not present itself. In men until the late teens, early 20s, and in women until the late 20s, early 30s, actually, for that diagnosis. Um, So he was seemingly, quote-unquote, normal as a child. And when he was three years old, his parents managed to move into a house in Sacramento, and a year later, his little sister Pamela was born. He was a Cub Scout. He also played four years of Little League. Uh, He was really well-known and well-liked by his teachers. They all said that he was a sweet, good child. He was also really well-liked by his peers, and he was noted of having dozens of them coming to his birthday parties that he would throw. Hmm. So, like, popular little kid, you know? Yeah. Um, now, on the outside, this family, of course, seemed very normal and sweet. But, of course, the story at home, like it usually happens, was much different. Mm. And I'm not saying the household is much different like it usually happens. But when it is, it usually is not shown to the outside world. Right. Uh, of course, this was the 1950s, so the household was much different than it is today. This was the time where, like, the nuclear family concept was thriving. It's, mm-hmm. like, the perfect American family. Yeah. Uh, with mom and dad, one boy, one girl, you know, mm-hmm. as their children. It's like Stepford Wives. Yeah. The mom was responsible for the housework. The father was meant to work and make the money for the family. Uh, the children were expected to help with the house and chores. And unfortunately, at this time, it wasn't far-fetched for children to get spanked, punished, or, or abused, you know, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, pretty much things that we would consider abuse today was very normal back then of in course. the household. Yeah. Um, however, the amount of physical abuse and mental abuse that Richard suffered was above average, even when compared to the abuse of other people that grew up to be serial killers. So he, they actually compared his childhood abuse with other people in the same situation where they grew up to be killers, and his was extensively worse. Yeah. Uh, which is really a bummer mm. because, I mean, like I said the other day, you want to feel bad for the, the kid, but you don't want to feel bad for the yeah. adult. Um, the <laughs> abuse was not only physical... It was mental and emotional, and it was actually, like, creative, for lack of a better term. Like, he, the father used, like, a lot of, like, unique ways to abuse his kids. Like, that's... That, I say that in a bad way. I don't no, mean unique, I, like... Ooh. No, it's... You know, and when, you, when you're when you describing Little Richard, he seems like a pretty good kid. Yeah. So, it's kind of interesting that he would receive that type of punishment at home. Yeah. Like, what could he possibly be doing? I think Senior was just a dick. Is I what think he's a sadist. Yeah, yeah, it's just, like... I mean, maybe he's just into beating kids, which is horrible. Now, this was kind of bad. One of the things that... (laughs) Hey. Hi. (laughs) Do it. What did you... He picked up a (laughs) hairdryer. I think he's being quiet, but you can hear everything (laughs) on the microphone. Um... So this is bad. Um, one of the things that Richard Sr. would do to little Richard was um, force feeding him at the age of two until he would vomit. That oh was like gosh. one of the ways he would abuse it, which is awful. I think like there's, I think food is one of those unsuspecting abuses. Mm. It's one of my, oh my gosh, I was watching yeah. a show the other day about a girl who just got so upset because somebody called her out for not eating specific foods. Mm-hmm. And she has a trauma there, and it's like, again, it's one of those things that's so under the radar, because you're like, how can you abuse your child with food? You can. But you can. You can and withhold that's... food, and you can force feed food on <sighs> so children, awful. unfortunately, which is so terrible. Um, Pamela, his, his little sister, also came out much later after the fact, and she said that she actually remembered multiple instances of uh, little Richard and Senior arguing, and this ended up with Richard Senior shaking little Richard and throwing him up against the wall on multiple occasions. 
So he could have. And he definitely... was like how old? L- little. Little. I mean, she was only four or five. She well, was only she was three little. years younger than yeah. him, so he had to have been, you know. The elder Richard was not only physically abusive, but he was noted as yelling at little Richard at any instant. Now I want to say little Richard every time. That's fine. Shout out little Richie (laughs) from work. (laughs) Um, He was noted at yelling at little Richard on any instance that he was wrong or he made his dad upset. So like Mm. he would be wrong about like a fact and his dad would get mad at him or like he would like put his opinion out that like a senior didn't agree with and he would yell at him for it. Ew. Seriously. Um, so not only was he super abusive to his children, but of course he was abusive to his wife, Beatrice. And they would constantly fight about marital things, uh, mostly money. Um, they would fight about his drinking problem and other things, you know, the stressful in a relationship, but not to the point where you need to be abusive about mm-hmm. it. Uh, unfortunately, this fighting was usually very loud and in front of the children, which, I mean, if you're going to beat your child, it's not off the wall to say that you're going to yeah, you're gonna with your wife in front do of it. Them. Yeah, you're going to do the same thing to your wife in yeah. front of your children. But I didn't see any record of Pamela <laughs> being abused, thank God. But isn't it interesting that he only focused on Richard? Well, you know what? Maybe it's the, the fear that she witnessed alone. Like, the fear that she exuded yeah. from watching that alone. Psychological abuse. That um, Well, of course, yeah. And of course, he would probably be emotionally abusive. Yeah. Um, But she, he probably felt like he didn't have to discipline her because... Of what she was witness to. That's true. Because clearly he's not above abusing women. Yeah, of course. Now, on Beatrice's side, she was no angel either. She uh, seemed to have some sort of mental illness or substance abuse problem, and she would frequently accuse Senior of, quote, using dope and trying to poison her, which accusing him of using dope is one thing, but accusing someone of trying to poison you, that literally indicates paranoia. Yeah. And delusion, which is a tall tale sign of schizophrenia when it's paired with other things. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, of course, yeah, if she's she's using that accusation quite often, then maybe that is a sign of mental illness of some kind. Now, she also would constantly accuse Richard Sr. of cheating on her with their neighbors. And one time they went on a family camping trip to Oregon, and she accused him of being unfaithful during that trip, like, with some random woman in Oregon. Like, not anybody specific, like, not like, oh, that lady, like, you did something, but she just accused him, like, since they were somewhere yeah. unknown that. Maybe he, like, went to go take a poop or something, and then... <laughs> Mac! My cat is very upset that he's not in here with us. He's crying. Everywhere. So because of all the marital problems that the parents were experiencing, they, of course, didn't pay much attention to the children. And it was uh, detrimental to Richard, especially because they didn't notice all of the tall tale mental health issues that he was exhibiting at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So he was having all of these, you know, concerning behaviors that his parents didn't even realize because they were so enveloped yeah. in their problems. So I said that he was 10 years old when he first really started showing symptoms of a mental illness, or at least when he started acting on those symptoms. It mm-hmm. was, I mean, he could have been a lot younger when he started yeah. to realize symptoms. Um, so it was around this time, another very, very significant sign of um, a serial killer in the making, for lack of a better term, Richard began to have a fascination with dead animals. Classic serial killer thing. Uh, He would find stray cats around the neighborhood, and he would torture and kill them to satisfy his interest. Mm. Um, Now, this is very specific to note, because at some point in all children's lives, they will become interested in harming animals. That's a normal person growing up thing. Not saying all children will try to kill a cat or a dog. However, I mean, you can't say that every child didn't, like, step on a roly-poly or pull the legs off of an insect or burn an ant with the micro... You know what I mean? Like, or magnifying glass. That's a... That's a normal kid thing. Yeah. When it escalates to not developing a conscience and not realizing that you're harming the animal, Mm -hmm. that's when it becomes detrimental. Right. 
Um, so a lot of children, of course, they will develop the conscience and they'll realize that, oh my God, like I'm hurting this poor thing. I need to stop. Well, unfortunately in cases like Richard, there's usually some sort of predisposition to mental illness. And when I say that, and I'm not going to go into it because I can do an entire episode just on this, (laughs) but (laughs) there is scientific evidence and theories and studies to prove that people are predispositioned to develop a mental illness just based on their genetics. And when uh, presented with a environmental situation such as a trauma or abuse or anything like that, that can actually put you over the edge, for lack of a better term, into having this mental illness actually express itself rather than staying stagnant. Mm -hmm. Isn't that so interesting? Okay, I'm done. (laughs) Because I will do an entire episode on that because that is so interesting. And shout out Dr. Kalmbach because she's been telling me all about that in class. Um, So Richard seemed to have a very grim interest in these animals' blood and their insides. It was almost like a clinical interest, though. So Hmm. it wasn't like... It wouldn't like have been a was bad surgery thing. or something. Like, it, yeah, it wouldn't have been a bad go, thing if you go didn't. Two ways: he's becoming a serial killer or a surgeon. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If he didn't take it upon himself to like do these things, then yeah, it would have been like a cool fascination. But like, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I got that out when I was a kid by taking apart CD players, Literally. not animals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, because of his fascination, he was leaning more towards his mental illness uh, rather than a brilliant mind that wanted to pursue a career in the medical field. It's noted by <laughs> that the age of 10, this is, I thought this was really interesting. Richard was already exhibiting evidence of all three parts of the McDonald triad. This is also known as the triad of sociopathy or the homicidal triad. Now, this is a combination of three factors that states if somebody is exhibiting two of these three things at once, or of course all three, they are more than likely going to end up growing to be some sort of serial offender, a serial violent offender. Mm -hmm. These three factors include cruelty of animals, obsession with fire starting, which we'll see in a minute that he does exhibit, yeah, and bedwetting past the age of five years old. Yes. So, and that's, you know, you are Yeah, I'm sorry, I I go, yes, like I know. No, but you do, like you study true crime, like, yes, you know, that's kind of a common thing that, you know, people know about, you know. A lot of serial killers or yeah. bedwetters, they're, you know, they start with animals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is bizarre to me because if his parents had paid any bit of attention to him, then this may have been able to be kept under wraps or at least controlled and possibly prevented. Yeah. Because they could have seen all of these things kind of falling into Especially place. things like bedwetting. Yeah. Where, like, I mean, again, and we said this during Josh Phillips' uh you know, case that we don't know what kind of household it was. It was a, is it messy all the time? Does it smell like cat or dog pee or, you know, whatever yeah. that smells like that. But I feel like it, you said past the age of five. eight or oh, five. Okay. So yeah, which would be a normal milestone for any child. Yeah. So yeah, past the age of five, I would assume somebody would do his bed sheets. Yeah. They have to, I mean, they have to know. Or maybe he would wake up and change himself really quick and they I mean, they don't freaking pay attention to their kids, so yeah, they're more concerned with their fighting. And then the other ones were uh, the animal abuse. And so starting fires. for starting like fires. Pyro, oh, okay. Pyro we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there Okay. Yet, but it does happen. Spoiler alert. That's, like, not even the worst part of this case. <laughs> like, the fire starting. <laughs> he lights like... something on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. The end. <laughs> um, now, back to his violence with animals, which started with cats, like I said, but also led up to birds, dogs, and rabbits one of which his mother actually found in the garden in their backyard after Richard had disposed of it. See? Like, she's seen You have shit. to know. Yeah. Oh, and the mom does nothing. I'll, oh, my God. You're going to be pissed later when Ugh, you find out what I'm she just turns pissed. a blind eye to. Ugh. 
Um, now, he had actually killed so many stray cats at this time that people around the neighborhood started to take notice of their disappearance. Um, or their disappearances. Now, on top of this, he became obsessed with setting fire to things, like I said earlier, just small things, but still, nonetheless. He was also still frequently wetting the bed, again, which is uncommon. After the age of five, he was 10 at this point. Unless, I want to know, unless you've experienced sexual abuse, because bedwetting is linked to, if you have sexual abuse when you're younger, you can have bedwetting episodes. However, yes. there was no account that that was ever recorded. It, not to say that it didn't happen, but that was never um, put out there that that happened to right. him when he was growing mm -hmm. up. Um, it was at this time as well that he began drinking alcohol very heavily. At 10? At 10 years old. What? So, you can see how this is going to go. Well, I mean, Senior probably had a bunch of booze laying around. Mm -hmm. Of course he did. He was an alcoholic himself. And, again, back to the whole predisposition thing, uh, it has actually been studied and proven that alcoholism can be up towards of 75 to 80% genetic. Oh, yeah. Totally. And it's, that's a ridiculous amount of, oh, yeah. Like, that's a ridiculous number. That's crazy to mm -hmm. me. Now, his behavior continued over the next two years, and by the age of 12, Richard's parents' fighting had reached a boiling point. It took them this long. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's but, finally spilling over. Right? Like, before he was born, they were, like, at each other's throats. <laughs> now, because of this, Beatrice took it upon herself to book sessions with two different psychiatrists for her emotional issues. Her emotional issues? So she can her get herself... Her own emotional issues. What? So she can get herself help, but she can't pay attention enough to Richard to realize that he needs help as well. She got her own self-help with two different psychiatrists because of her emotional issues. And don't get me wrong, I guarantee you if she had, like, the money... She's also a battered woman. She probably was looking for... I mean, honestly, personal experience, looking for an excuse... Of course. ...to get away from that mother. Well, I think that she's... She could have very easily also been diagnosed with schizophrenia based on her behavior. She also could be completely brainwashed and have no idea. She thinks that her husband is just disciplining those children. That's true. You know? Now, at the I'm age gonna, of... I'm going to give... What's her name? Barbara? Beatrice. <laughs> Beatrice. I'll give Beatrice a bit of the doubt. You're all right, Beatrice. I don't think she's alive. <laughs> I don't... That's okay. Well... Hey, Beatrice. Hey, Beatrice. <laughs> got her. You got her. Stymax loved that, by the way. <laughs> you got her. You got her. At the age of 13, Richard's parents' financial hardships ultimately caused them to lose the house that they had bought in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Now, this is when Richard's view of reality had actually really become skewed. This is also the first time that it's noted that he became convinced that he was actually a member of the James Younger Gang, which was a group of outlaws from the 19th century that included Jesse James. Hmm. So he thought he was one of those members of that gang, which is like, all right, whatever. He's a country western fan. Yeah, he had actually gotten a poster of the gang and taped him s a picture of himself onto it <laughs> so that it looked like he was part of the crew. <laughs> it's not funny. It's Look, Mom. <laughs> Look, Mama, I'm Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> and he would actually constantly ask his mom to buy him a cowboy hat. I mean, that's kind of sweet. <sighs> that's like... kind of very, that's actually very cute. Right. If it wasn't completely drenched in mental disorder. Oh, of course. Yeah. And it wasn't like an outlaw gang that like literally murdered people. <laughs> like what if it part of the deadlock gang? Um, he also developed a strange habit of burning pans on the stove while attempting to cook for himself in the middle of the night. Like, I guess he was trying to cook and he would, like, burn something on in purpose? the pan. I don't know. It sounds like it's on purpose. Yeah. He was also noted as leaving messes and puddles in the kitchen and refusing to clean them up, which, like, classic teenager. But on multiple occasions, he would turn up the heat in the house to 90 degrees while he was alone and then strip naked and stay the night on the couch in the living room. Well, continuing to light small fires and still wetting the couch. I said wetting the couch. It's wetting the bed, but he was on the couch. 
What? And he's how old? 13. 13? He's wetting the bed still at 13. I'm sorry, but like, I don't know what 13-year-old wants to walk around naked in their house. By the time that Richard reached high school, his parents were completely done with each other. Took you long enough. (laughs) Or so they said. Our Uh, responsibilities as parents are done. We can now separate. Literally. You guys did such a phenomenal job. Well, he reached high school. He's 14 at this time. He still has a little sister that's three years younger than him. That's true. Um, Their job's far from done. Right? So they said that they they were completely done with each other, and Beatrice left Sacramento and took the children to L.A. to live with her and their relatives. Richard was in ninth grade at this point. Well, his dad didn't want this, so he followed them to L.A. to get them back, where... He showed up at the house and said, you know, you guys are coming back with me. Well, Richard, little Richard, took it upon himself to go back to Sacramento with his dad. I mean, he just got in high school. I'd probably want to go back to my friends, too, you know, in high school. senior, what are you thinking? Like, you clearly have this thought that, like, your your wife and your children are burdenous enough that you have to abuse them. Yeah. And then you get away, I'm sorry, but scot-free. They move to L.A., and now you're going to, like... You're not done terrorizing yeah, them? Yeah, he didn't like, have anybody to abuse anymore. He had to go get them back. Oh, my gosh. Now, four months later, Beatrice and Pamela moved back to Sacramento to live with the men. Now, back at school, Richard was still very well-liked by his peers. He kept himself well-groomed and clean, and he was even popular, going on a few dates with some girls. I bet he couldn't stay the night. <laughs> the only thing that's noted about his behavior in high school that was different, that was that he dabbled in smoking marijuana, which who didn't in the fucking 60s? Which is fine, but he also experimented with a lot of LSD, which who didn't in the fucking 60s, but still, he's 15 at yeah. this point. That's yeah. terrifying. No, oh, that's terrifying. I, I knew people that did LSD when I was in high school. You still friends with them? No. <laughs> <laughs> Are they in jail? <laughs> Some <kidding>. of them. <laughs> um, so this, like we said the other in the other case with uh, marijuana, it doesn't matter if you're a teenager, it's detrimental to the development of your brain. Of course, And yeah. LSD, no, of, even if you are 25, it's detrimental to your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Especially it's not... when you're so young and yeah. you don't... I mean, I know I, I now there's the term, like, microdosing and things yeah. like that, you know, which apparently have been beneficial as far as scientific developments have, have uh, played out, but... Were they uh, microdosing in the 60s? No, that's what I'm saying is like, I think that now they're macro macro dosing, take it to the highest, take it to the fullest. And that's what I'm saying. Like when you're 15 and you've gotten away with smoking weed or doing shrooms or whatever it is, you know, and you graduate to LSD, do you really know what you're doing? Probably not. Probably not. So yeah, you're just going to just go balls to the wall with some LSD. (laughs) And there were two girls in particular that he exclusively dated. I couldn't find the name of one of them, but the other one by the name of Libby Christopher, he exclusively dated for a little over a year. However, even though these two relationships were going well at the time that he was in them, Richard ran into a deal-breaking issue. While he was physically attracted to girls, he could not maintain an erection when becoming intimate with them. And it was for this reason that the relationships didn't last. Hmm. So he knew he was attracted to girls, but he could not achieve erection or orgasm when he was trying to be intimate with them. Right. Which can be very detrimental on your relationship yeah, and your sex Yeah, I mean, life. yeah. I, I just from... I, clearly, the dude has a lot on his mind. Of course, of course. <laughs> so. Now, this is humiliating for any man, I can imagine. Yeah. But especially for a young adult teenager, that's literally supposed to be the epitome of getting a boner, is what I put. Because, like... <laughs> They are like, yeah, that's literally the high sex drive yeah. and, and going through puberty and like all that stuff and like exploring relationships yeah. and 
Yeah, of course. Now, on top of this, he was also really underweight, and he felt that he was weak-looking, and he was weak-feeling, and he began to obsess over the fact that he was unable to get an erection. After stirring on, the, uh, on this idea for a while, he came to the conclusion that he could not get a boner because he did not have enough blood in his body to make this happen. Hmm. So you know how, of course, everyone knows how a boner works, but if you don't, blood rushes to the penis and it makes it big. Well, he got the idea, I must not have enough blood in my body because I'm so small, and that's yeah, why it's not it's, working. It's not circulating I don't have correctly or I'm not pumping enough blood. Huh. That's an interesting thought. So if you can't see where this is going, I'll tell you. In his mind, he needed to begin to consume the blood of the animals that he had been killing in order to help himself achieve an erection. Um, now, he's called the Vampire of Sacramento for a reason. Who didn't see that coming? Yeah. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Plot twist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> regardless of his internal and physical struggles, Richard remained popular in high school, and it was invited to many different hangouts, such as parties, you know, with the Red Cups. You've seen movies. And uh, you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> John Mulaney quote. <laughs> I didn't laugh until you actually said, you're you supposed to laugh. Know. Well, he went to a house party one night, and he drank a huge amount of alcohol. He began to behave erratically, running down the street, and he was making noises that were, like, unintelligible, like people couldn't understand what he was saying. Mm. One of his friends was worried about him, so he drove him home, good friend, where uh, Richard actually opened up about his impotence and that how it was affecting him mentally to his oh, friend. Man. Right? That must suck. I know, and I really feel for him at this point in his life because, like, that's not his fault. Yeah. And he and we'll find out later that it's due to, like, underlying stress and, you know, all of his of um, mental illness. Now, I mentioned earlier that he was involved in drug use, and of course it's only heightened things. It's noted that this is the time where he was no longer a Cub Scout Little League kid and instead was this moody teen that hung out with acid heads and had no remorse for stealing or harming animals. Hmm. So he was really, like, completely doing a 180. You know what's kind of interesting, though, is that usually kids like that, they go through that hurting animal phase really early on. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he stretched this way into his teens is kind of, I think, a little unique. Yeah. Because I really feel like once... Once young boys realize that they are young men and that they're capable and powerful, then they know that they could probably start doing worse things to people. So it's interesting that in his psyche, he's so weak yeah. that he can only prey on animals. Well, he's been told that his whole life by his dad. Right. You know? so, but I, like I said, I think it's interesting that he's stretched that out into yeah. his young adult years. Yeah. Now... Of course, his parents became disappointed in this, in this behavior, and his dad was especially disappointed, which, like, fuck you because you're an abusive alcoholic, so I don't really care what you think. Uh, at the age of 15, Richard had his first run-in with the law. He got arrested for, for possession of marijuana. He denied that he took it, like, that he had ingested the marijuana, but he was sentenced to community service as his punishment. His dad did not protest this, but he also did not hire a lawyer to represent his son while he was going through this, and this made Richard Jr.'s resentment for his parents grow. Like, um, because yeah. his dad was like, pretty much like, figure it out. Like, you, mm -hmm. like, screw you. You, you do this to yourself. Now, after this happened, Richard began to do very poorly in school with his grades going from B's to F's. He didn't care about school. He didn't care about much other things than drugs and blood at this point. Although his grades were slipping and he didn't seem to do much, he was still able to graduate from Mira Loma High School in 1968. And his parents actually bought him a Volkswagen as a present. Won't bust him out of jail. Won't bust him out of a legal situation. Don't hire a lawyer. Don't hire a lawyer. Here's a car. Yeah, literally. Well, this was three years later. Still, here's a car. <laughs> In 1969, he's now 18 years old and still suffering the embarrassment of his erectile dysfunction. 
He actually took it upon himself to see a doctor for this problem who determined that he suffered from erectile dysfunction due to repressed anger or mental illness. Good on ya. Not only did he want to visit the psychiatrist for this reason, but he had also been identifying that his emotions were unable to be controlled and it was beginning to worry him. So he's, like, seeking help for this. He's like, there's he, like, something He knows wrong. something's wrong. Now, the doctor, however, did not think that Richard was mentally ill to the point where he needed treatment or a prescription... And he didn't receive any ongoing mental health treatment after that. So what did that. he say? Like, go home and do some fucking yoga? He's Meditate? Like, mindfulness. Be mindful. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, so he began to look for his own explanation. Well, this is when he went back to the idea that his body was low on blood, like he thought a couple years prior. As time went by, Richard changed from this put-together, clean young man. It was now a disheveled, dirty man with long, uncombed hair that was living in filth. He began, began to withdraw... He began to crumble, and people unfortunately stopped coming by his house or inviting him to hang out because of this. Richard Sr. was becoming worried about his son, which is funny, but Beatrice brushed it off as a typical 60s teenager that was a hippie and normal for the times and didn't seem to think anything was wrong with her son. Now, upon further research, I really, like I said earlier, I think that she could have been diagnosed with at least some sort of mental illness had she gotten the chance to, and I really think that she didn't want the blame of passing that on to him and maybe she was ignoring it because it was easier. Yeah, that might have been a point of contention between the two of them, yeah. uh, Richard Sr. and Beatrice, that, you know, you made our son crazy, he yeah. is that way because of you, yeah. like, all this stuff, and maybe it was hard for her to acknowledge that. Also, we have to remember that if she if she were to have been diagnosed with something similar, she probably doesn't recognize that yeah. he looks like that or That's is true. that way. Um, for her, I mean, there are parts of schizophrenia that are, you know, when you talk about delusions and stuff like that, or hallucinations even, Yeah. in her mind, he might've just been a very well-adjusted young man because he was such a sweet kid growing up, you know? I mean, I don't know. Or maybe she felt like he got such a raw deal growing up, she didn't want to bother him. That's also true. (laughs) She's like, I'll just let him do his thing. Now, in late 1968, Richard actually got a job as a typist, and he held this job for some time. This was with the Retailers Credit Association. Beatrice would say that his work was more than satisfactory, and he was beginning to talk about going to college, a decision that his parents both supported. He went with it, and he actually enrolled at American River College, so he was doing all the right things. As he got older, however, his mental health began to decline, and he began expressing ideas of hypochondria. He would constantly claim that his heart would, heart would, quote, stop beating or that somebody had stolen his pulmonary artery, which is a very weird thing to think. He also would hold oranges to his forehead, believing that the vitamin D could be transferred through his skin and absorbed into his brain via diffusion. Yeah. At this time, he also believed that his cranial bones had become detached and were beginning to move around his head, so he would frequently shave his head in order to watch the progress. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, I keep this it in. Poor man. <laughs> I just it just made like it. It's mind blowing because I don't want to laugh because of the. Re- I want to. You're not laughing at him. You're laughing how about how ridiculous, ridiculous and unfortunate ridiculous these ideas are. And and it's it's sad that that's like mentally what he must like. How traumatizing? Mm-hmm. How an- anxiety written must you be like? Yeah. No wonder you're deteriorating as a human because, I mean, if that's, if those are things that you are thinking, then life must be exhausting. I, that's one of my biggest fears is losing my mind. And that's like really, like it holds a lot of weight for me because I'm like, that's yeah. terrifying. Um, now, he was also noted as telling a doctor that his stomach was upside down. 
and that he believed that his mother was slowly poisoning him. Sound familiar? Sounds so familiar. So he was also noted, this is a little bit bad, trigger warning about animals. He was also noted as capturing many different small types of animals, again, like he did earlier, drinking their blood and eating their flesh raw. Uh, He was also noted as mixing some of their organs with Coca-Cola and blending them together and drinking it in an attempt to keep his heart from shrinking. So he thought that if his heart shrank, he thought that his heart was shrinking and that if it did, eventually it would get too small and disappear, causing him to die. So his way of preventing this was by ingesting as much blood and protein as possible. Well, drinking these, he called them smoothies, and we'll see that he does that throughout the rest of his life. He'll Mm. make these concoctions, and I'm not going to mention it again after this, but he will. In 1975, Richard was involuntarily committed to a mental institution after being taken to the hospital for blood poisoning, which he contracted after injecting rabbit blood into his veins. So instead of drinking the blood, he's now injecting it into his veins, and he got blood poisoning from it. That's oh like sepsis. Gosh. Like, you could die from that. You most you That's usually incredible. die from that. He actually escaped from this mental institution at one point from the hospital, and he went to his mom's house. He was apprehended, and he was sent to an institution for the criminally insane, where he would told... I'll told, say. <laughs> where he told staff of his fantasies about killing rabbits. While fellow patients would frequently catch him capturing birds through his window drinking their blood and discarding them into the trash. He was also caught extracting blood from the hospital's therapy dog and injecting it into himself, just like the rabbit blood earlier. Because of this bizarre behavior, he got his first nickname, Dracula, by the staff at this place, which is awful. They started calling him Dracula, which is like, dude, you're here to, like, advocate for the material. Yeah, to help people. Yeah. And you give them nasty nicknames. It was during this time that Richard was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So you think it's over, right? He's gotten the treatment. He's in a good place. Yeah. Well, I have like five. He's pages got a cool left. new nickname. Yeah. Now, after undergoing several treatments, Richard was deemed no longer a threat to himself or society. How many? Several. It said oh, several I'm treatments. Sorry. I it was less than I was a. Like... Actually, it was less than a year. Oh. Uh, and he was on, you know, antipsychotic meds. Um. After this, I mean, in 1955 is when Thorazine was invented. So mm-hmm. yes, that's had to have been what they were giving him. He was deemed no longer a threat to himself or society and released from the hospital in 76 and was sent to live with his mother, who said, hold on, she gets worse. Oh, he must be cured. He doesn't need this medication anymore. And she began to wean him off of it. Okay. Beatrice, you better be taking those drugs because homegirl, you need them. Schizophrenia is not curable. You can never be cured if you are diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's unfortunate reality. However, you can live a very normal life if you are on your medication yeah. and you take it for the rest of your life. Yeah. And even if you're on your medication and you start to feel better, do not stop taking your medication yeah. because that's what's making you feel better. Mm-hmm. I'm like getting annoyed. Well, because he was not cured, of course, he <laughs> again began accusing his mother of trying to poison him. This got so bad that Senior actually forced him to move out and they bought him his own apartment. That's going to work, right? Didn't get a lawyer, bought him a car and an apartment. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, I read somewhere that his parents bought him his own place, but I read somewhere else that he moved into an apartment with friends, which I think they also paid for, uh, began doing a lot of LSD and smoking weed a lot, and he would constantly walk around the apartment naked, like with the roommates in front of company even. Well, because of this behavior, the roommates were like, hey, move out, and he was like, no, and so they ended up moving out themselves. So either way, it happened. He was living alone at this point. Now that he was alone again, he was free to do things as he pleased. He continued to capture and eat dogs, cats, rabbits, birds, etc. 
He was even noted as stealing and killing his neighbor's pets. And at one point, he called one of his neighbors to tell them what he had done to their pet. Like, out of guilt? Or, like... Out of... Psych- Probably psychosis. 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 Now he became fascinated by the crimes of the Hillside Stranglers, which is a bonkers case. We'll have to we'll have to cover it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he believed that the Stranglers were also the victim of the Nazi slash UFO conspiracy that he believed he was the victim of. So he's like, oh, these poor people are victim. Then we'll get into that later with what he, he thought, thought was that going he was on. abducted by aliens. Um, well, it says Nazi UFO conspiracy. It doesn't go into detail until later. So, I'll oh, okay. Now, he also became very lazy with his hygiene and didn't care to brush his teeth or his hair. He actually began to lose a bunch of weight, and he actually became 145 pounds at one point. Oh, wow. How tall is he? 5'11". And how old is he? 20. Okay, yeah, that's, that's I mean, skinny. that's a little skinny. That's I mean, that's skinny. not like ridiculous. No, but, but that's thin. I mean, yeah. especially maybe, I mean, who knows? He might have been a little bit bigger before that. You yeah. Know? Now, I noted a couple more things that were weird that he did leading up to his kills, which were, this one's bad, trigger warning. He showed up to his mom's house and knocked on the door, and when she answered, he thrusted a dead cat into her face. Mm. He then threw the cat on the ground, knelt down, ripped open its stomach with his bare hands, and stuck his hands inside the cat, and then proceeded to smear its blood all over his face, all the while screaming. That is nightmare fuel. That is horrifying. That's... At 20. It doesn't matter if he's a grown-ass man or not. That's fucking scary. You want to know what Beatrice did? <laughs> did she get another therapist? She calmly returned inside the house and did not report the incident to anyone. Oh my god. What the fuck? Who, uh, who does that? Who does yep. that? Let alone his own mother. That's... I know. Ugh, that's haunting. Now, on August 3rd, 1977, Nevada State Police discovered his Ford Ranchero stuck in a sand drift near Pyramid Lake, Nevada. Inside were two rifles, a pile of clothes, a bucket full of blood, and also in the bucket, a liver. Like a human liver? Now, the officers followed Prince <laughs> and found Richard, who was naked and screaming in the sand, soaked from head to toe was in it his, blood. Was it his own liver? When questioned, he claimed that the blood was his own and it had leaked out of him through his flesh. It was later tested and it was determined to be bovine. It was a cow liver. Oh, still. Right? Right? Still t- I had to keep you guessing there. <laughs> it was great. Look Audience is like, oh. Just look at you and smirk and just keep going. <laughs> On December 27th, 1977, Richard randomly fired his 22-gauge handgun into a Sacramento woman's kitchen. Not injuring anybody, but sparking his intense liking of firing guns into innocent situations. So he decided, oh, wow, I really like that. Like he like, likes a drive-by. Or he like was a... literally drive yeah. Wow. Now, two days later, this is December 29th, he was driving in a neighborhood when one Ambrose Griffin was in his front yard helping his wife get the groceries out of the car. Richard shot his gun at Ambrose, killing him in his own front yard. This man was in his 50s. This would become his first kill, and they didn't know it was him for a really long time because it was so random. Yeah. And it was so, like, out of, like, the blue, you know? Yeah. Clearly he's a nice man. He's just helping his wife with groceries. Yeah. And later... Probably didn't have a lot of enemies. Later, Richard called this a quote-unquote warm-up for all the crimes that he was going to commit next. Ugh. It's awful. Now, what followed was an increase in breaking and entering, stealing and victimizing for the next few days, and later some very, very brutal murders. Now, on January 11th, 1978, Richard went to his neighbor's door and asked to bum a cigarette. When she went for her pack of cigarettes, he restrained her until she gave him the entire thing. 
didn't hurt her and just left. Really hmm. weird. I mean, maybe he, like, hurt her, but he didn't, you know, he didn't yeah, hurt her. He, yeah. Nearly two weeks later, on the 23rd of January, at 2909 Bernie Street, Jeannie Layton spotted an unkempt young man with longish hair walking through her backyard towards her back door. She watched as he tried her patio door. He found it locked, and then he went to the windows. They, too, were locked, so then he came back to the back door, like the patio door. Mm-hmm. She met him there at the time that he came back because she's a bad bitch, face-to-face, well, she said that he showed no emotion whatsoever as he scrutinized her. I guess he said some choice words to her. Yeah. Well, then he turned, paused to light a cigarette, and then walked away through her backyard. Like, he was planning on breaking in. But doors were locked, windows were locked, she yeah. was there, and he was like, hmm. But met some kind of a force, and then he was like, eh. Well, no, he, he, he like, I think he might have scrutinized her through, like, a glass door or something. Like, she didn't open the door to, like, talk to him. <laughs> she, like, met him at the door, and then he... Yeah. So now... He, saying, actually, and he didn't choose to bust windows or anything like that. Yes. It's just like, oh, someone's home. Yes. Go on to the next one. Well, he was later noted as telling investigators that he considered a locked door as a sign that he was not welcome, but an unlocked door as a sign to just come right in. Like a vampire. Oh. My. God. I didn't even put that together until you said that, and now I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Shit. I wonder if garlic works. <laughs> now, well, garlic comes... No, I'm just <laughs> While wandering around, he encountered an old friend of his named Nancy Holden. He attended high school with her. He attempted to get a ride from her, but she refused. We're going to go into details of this encounter a little bit later because it does come back up. Mm -hmm. Now, down the street, Robert and Barbara Edwards were bringing their groceries into the house when they heard a noise inside. Whoever was there apparently had heard them and started to run. They heard a window slam at the back of the house, and then, oddly, a disheveled young man came around the corner at them. Edwards tried to stop him. Robert did. And he sprinted past and got out onto the street. Mm-hmm. Well, the man started to try to chase Richard, but lost him when he jumped their fence. Um, so he was in their house, and they they were came home, home, and he was doing something. Shopping. Freaked yeah. him out. Um, now, when they went to their home to make sure that everything was okay, they had actually noticed that he urinated on their infant child's bed and defecated in her drawers. So he, like avoided his bells all over their house oh my gosh i know now if all of this was not already bizarre and bad enough it's about to get way worse so this is where i'm going to detail that very very graphic crime the trigger warning of the episode now on january 23rd richard broke into the home of david and Teresa whalen david was not home at the time and Teresa had left the door unlocked because she was in the process of taking out the trash richard shows in shows up goes inside and immediately shoots her three times once in the hand, a defensive when wound. When she comes back in from taking out the trash? Yes. So, once in the hand, defensive wound, and twice in the head with the same gun that he had used earlier to kill that Ambrose Griffin. He killed her instantly. He then committed necrophilia by having intercourse with her dead body, all the while stabbing her with a butcher knife in the chest multiple times. So oh she's already gosh. dead at this point, and he's just going but for it. But it's the blood. He removed multiple of her organs, cut off one of her nipples, and drank her blood. This is really bad. Before leaving, he took some dog feces from their yard and stuffed it in her throat. I don't know what the motive behind that was or what the plan was for that. Humiliation, maybe? Maybe. Um, She was unfortunately three months pregnant at the time. Oh, gosh. I know. That's so sad. I know. There's more to what happened that you can find, but I didn't want to go into too much detail. And that was the graphic picture that I saw, just so that everyone know. Um, now, two days later, Richard broke into the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth. 
She was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, David, at the time, and her six-year-old, Jason, was also there. Also in the house was a neighbor named Dan Meredith, and Evelyn was actually in the bath, and Dan was watching the kids when Richard entered the home. Mm. Using the same gun as before, he shot Dan in the head, killing him instantly. He then turned him over and stole his wallet and his car keys. Jason, the six-year-old, ran to where his mom was in the bathroom, but before he could get there, Richard fatally shot him in the head as well. And on the way to the little boy, Jason, he shot the 22-month-old in the head as well. Wow. And they both died instantly. He then entered the bathroom and fatally shot Evelyn in the head. This is where it gets bad. He dragged her corpse to the bed and repeatedly sodomized her, all the while drinking blood from multiple wounds on the back of her neck that he had made with a knife. Wow. Um, When the body was later examined by the medical examiners... They noted that they found a, quote, unusual amount of semen in the rectal area, indicating multiple ejaculations. That's, okay. So he realized so that he now, can only achieve erection when there's well, blood or a dead body Well, he thinks that the blood involved. is giving him power. I think so. Yeah. Now, after this, he remained in the home for quite some time and continued to defy all the corpses. I do not want to get into the graphic detail because it is very hard. Again, all this is out there, right? Absolutely, yeah. You can definitely find this information. Um, I just don't feel comfortable saying it. Now, at this point, a six-year-old little girl came over because she had scheduled a play date with the older child, Jason, for that day. The knock on the door scared Richard off, who then left the residence in Dan's car, and he actually took the youngest boy's body with him, the 22-month-old. Oh, wow. The little girl alerted neighbors because she saw him run, I guess. Uh, The neighbors called the police and entered the the home to find the horrible scene. Fortunately, if there's any good in this at all, Richard left perfect handprints and shoe prints at the scene. Dummy. Right? Thank God for dumb killers. So I said that Richard took the youngest boy with him, but of course I'm not going to go into detail about what happened back at his apartment, because if you can believe it, it's a hundred times worse than what I've already said. So you can look it up if you please, but I'm not going to say it here. Um, After he was finished with this part of his crime, he disposed of the body at a nearby church. Now, Dan's station wagon, the car that Richard had stolen, was found abandoned not far from the murder scene with the key still in it. There was little hope that the baby was still alive because they didn't find the baby at the scene. Mm -hmm. The police didn't know it, but the parking lot where they had located the missing car was only about 100 yards from apartment 15 of the Watt Avenue complex where Richard Trenton Chase lived. What? Yeah. He was that close? Yeah. Now, the FBI were already on the case. Robert Ressler and Russ Vorpajol developed a profile of who they were probably looking for. They figured him for a disorganized killer as opposed to an organized one, with some clues pointing towards the possibility of psychosis. He clearly They're had not, not planned... off. Yeah. <laughs> he clearly had not planned these crimes, and he did little to hide or destroy any of the evidence. Of course, he left those footprints and fingerprints and palm prints, and he had probably walked around in daylight with blood on his clothing. In other words, he gave little thought to the consequences. Of course, yeah. <laughs> At the very least, his domicile would be as sloppy as the places he ransacked after he finished with them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the murder scenes were fairly close together meant that he might not have a car. In fact, he had actually taken the car from the house, of course, so he must have walked to that house. Yeah. Now, this they said that this meant that it was likely that he lived in the vicinity of the crime, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was also likely that he would kill again and keep on killing until he was caught. So it was like a spree killing they were thinking. Yeah. So, of course, they had to work fast. They also figured him to be a white male in his 20s, thin and undernourished, which is like, whoa, that's like really accurate. (laughs) That's very specific. Uh, So they were sure that if they found his residence, evidence of the crimes would be there. And if he had a vehicle, it would also have evidence in there as well. Uh, They also said that he would either have a history of mental illness or drug use or both, and he would be something of a loner. 
This what is like is, so is this on criminal mind? What, what is this that? Is, a, this is mind? the FBI, yeah, yeah, profile. Mind hunter. Right? This is actually verbatim. I'm quote. I'm not quoting, but I'm reading verbatim what yeah. I saw. Well, they thought he was probably employed at some menial labor or unemployed, given his apparent state of mind, and could be receiving some disability money. He probably lived alone, and he might be paranoid. And then many people were questioned around the same area, and some had seen a white male driving a red station wagon. So the police artist tried to make a sketch, but few of the descriptions were helpful, except for that of a young woman. Remember the same woman from earlier that refused to give him a ride? Nancy Holden? Mm-hmm. She had called saying that she believed these horrible murders could have been Richard. She had told him that she had an odd encounter. This was the one from earlier. Mm-hmm. She was shopping in the town and country village shopping center, not far from his apartment complex and close to the close to the residence of these horrible killings, when she saw a strange man approaching her who appeared to be confused. She said she tried to avoid him, but he directed a question at her. The question said, were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? He asked. Nancy was startled, apparently. She said that 10 years earlier, she had dated a boy named Kurt who had been killed on a motorcycle. Wow. So she said it was then that she noticed something really familiar about this interrogator, you know, the guy. Uh, She asked him who he was, and he replied, Rick Chase. And she was absolutely dumbfounded. She's like, this guy looked nothing like the clean-cut Rick that I had known in high school. She said she had heard that he'd gotten into drugs, and looking at him now, she realized that that was true. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said he was grimy and stained, and his agitated manner made her nervous. Yeah. Well, she also said that she talked with him for a few minutes, trying to, you know, kind of seek her way out, and finally was able to leave when the, the store when he was still paying for something. However, he followed her into the parking lot, intent on getting a ride from her. Creep. Well, she managed to get into her car, roll up the windows, lock the doors, and pull out before he could stop her. Thank God. She yeah, was like, I just had been to get away. Sure. She's like, I'm, I, I knew I was being rude, but I just need to get away. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, because of the amount of evidence left at the crime scene and this call... Detectives went to Richard's apartment where he refused to speak with them, of course. Uh, Hiding down the hallway, police waited for him to come outside. They actually knocked on the door and he didn't answer. So they like pretended to walk away. They did that like step. Yeah, just like that. Um, So he came outside eventually and they immediately arrested him when they noticed he was carrying a bloodstained box. Mm Mm-hmm. Inside of this box were pieces of blood-soaked wallpaper and the pistol that he had used. They also noted that his apartment was covered in blood from the floor to the ceiling, up the walls, and on all of his eating utensils. So he, like, was, he was doing like, something. anointing his apartment yeah, with blood. Um, so inside the refrigerator, trigger warning, this is bad, police found several animal body parts. They also found the 22-month-old David's brain in a Tupperware container. And several of Evelyn and Teresa's organs. Wow. Evidence was gathered from Richard to compare to samples that were already being analyzed in the crowd from the murder victims. While there was plenty of blood on his clothing, they also took samples from him. However, when they tried to take a blood sample, he had to be restrained because they had no idea of his intense fear of losing his blood. Yeah. And he was like, you're not taking my blood, motherfuckers. I like, worked hard for this. Yeah. Um, now, Ferris Salome was appointed as Richard's attorney. And he immediately separated from the detectives who had spent so much time trying to extract a confession. Of course. Uh, now, police officers continued to search for the baby. They used a bloodhound. And they even went to Richard's mom's home. And she was so uncooperative, insisting that despite what they had found, it did not prove that her son had done anything. Oh, yeah. At one point, Richard admitted to another inmate that he had drank the blood of his victims because, it had, because he had blood poisoning. He needed blood and he had grown tired of hunting and killing animals. Finally, the 22-month-old was found. 
On March 24th, a church janitor came upon a box containing mm. the remains of the baby, unfortunately. It was very sad. When they arrived, they recognized the clothing, and it was determined that it was the missing boy from the Mirith home. Uh, again, there is more detail here I'm not going to go into. You can find it if you'd like. Um, beneath the body was a ring of keys that fit Dan Meredith's now-impounded car. Huh. So, the car that he had stolen, I right. guess there was a set of keys that were... And even though the keys were left in the well, car, Well, he ditched the chain. car, and then he left the baby, the car, or the car keys. Now, the lead prosecutor for the case of California versus Richard Trenton Chase, Ronald W. Tochterman, he intended to seek the death penalty. The defense actually entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but the prosecutor Good was de- <laughs> the prosecutor was determined to show that he knew the difference between right and wrong and that he was not compelled to murder. Part of the prosecution's strategy included playing up on the legends of Dracula. He also had read about blood-related crimes and blood rituals in various cultures and noting that some people believed that ingesting another person's blood would strengthen or heal them. Uh, He, of course, wanted to paint that to the jury. He wanted to show that this, while this might be a belief, it was not a viable reason for murder. Richard then took the stand in his own defense. At this point... No, 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 no. He looked awful and he had dropped in weight to 107 pounds. So he's like a skeleton. Yeah. His oh, eyes were sunken gosh. and lusterless, is what I'm, they said. I'm sure he thought that it was because he wasn't consuming any blood. Mm-hmm. Now, he claimed to have been semi-conscious during the Wallen murder, and he described in detail the way that he had mis- been mistreated much of his life. He admitted to drinking the blood, but he did not recall much about the second series of murders, but he knew that he had done something after the fact with the baby. He thought his problems had stemmed from his inability to have sex with girls as a teenager, and he said he was sorry for the killings. Well, in order to avoid the death penalty, the defense tried to have him found guilty of second-degree murder, which would have resulted in a life sentence. Their case literally hinged on his history of mental illness and the lack of planning in his crimes, evidence that they weren't premeditated. Hmm. The jury was not having it. <laughs> well, I mean, the premeditation is that he need, he thinks he needs blood yeah. to survive. Yeah. That That is premeditation in and itself. Yeah. Now, the defense asked for a clemency hearing, actually, in which a judge determined that Richard was not legally insane. But on May 8th, 1978, after only five hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of six counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to die in a gas chamber. Wow. Now, during the sanity phase, the judge found Richard legally sane after deliberating only an hour. It took them four hours to decide that he should die in the gas chamber at San Quentin Penitentiary, which is Mm. a very rough prison. Yeah. In prison, the other inmates were actually super terrified of him. Obviously aware of his graphic graphic crimes. (laughs) And according to prison officials, they often tried to convince him to kill himself because they were too fearful to get close enough to do it themselves. Wow. That's creepy, right? Now, this is where that Nazi UFO theory comes back into play. Richard was also granted a series of interviews with Robert Ressler, during which he spoke of his fears of Nazis and UFOs, claiming that although he had killed, it was not his fault, and he had been forced to kill to keep himself alive, which he believed any person would do. He asked Ressler to give him access to a radar, radar gun with which he could apprehend the Nazi UFO so that the Nazis could stand trial for the murders. So he was now saying a bunch of nonsense. Like, yeah. they made me do it. Like, I was possessed or, you know, yeah. whatever. Sounds they like were the Indiana ones that actually Jones did it. fights the Nazis and aliens. He also handed Ressler a large amount of macaroni and cheese, which he had been hoarding in his pants pockets, believing that the prison officials were in league with the Nazis and attempting to kill him. I don't know why he needed to hoard mac and cheese to prevent that from happening. But Did he think that maybe the mac and cheese was, like, poisoned or yeah, something? probably. Like, and that he was like, oh, take this to the outside and get a test. Yeah. They're trying right. to poison me. Right. Shit. Now, on December 26th, 1980, 
a guard had found Richard lying on his bed, not breathing. After autopsy, it was determined that he had committed suicide with an overdose of prison doctor-prescribed antidepressants, which he had been saving for up to weeks prior. Which, now, they, like, wait for you to take them yeah, in front of you. Yeah, you have to. K.P. Holmes, the coroner, was called. He searched the cell and located the strange suicide note about taking some pills. Richard had been taking a daily dose of Cinequin for hallucinations and depression, which came to his cell in a package of three pills. Apparently, he had hoarded the pills and then overdosed. The cause of his death was to- <laughs> the cause of his death was toxic ingestion. His heart was found to be in normal and in good shape, despite his lifelong concerns about it being shrunk. Too tiny, shrunken. like the Grinch. Yeah. The prison psychiatrist noted that Richard had been psychotic since the time he had entered the prison, but no one much bothered about the nature of his bizarre obsession with blood. In 1992, a movie called Unspeakable was made based on Richard as a model for the killer. His case is actually still used by the FBI as the archetypal model for understanding the disorganized killer. Interesting. That was a doozy. <laughs> that, that is a the lot story. of information. That was a lot of a lot of tragic things that happened yeah. to pe- undeserving people. Yeah. Um, but most of all. I mean, him knowing that he has this mental disorder and it never got treated. Yeah. And when it was treated, he had people around him that didn't support him in that treatment. I, it's, think that, I mean, that's just as awful. It's really a, a tragic case, especially for the victims, but yeah. also for Richard. I mean, he was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia. That's the thing that I don't understand. He was diagnosed. He got the treatment that he should have gotten. He got the doctor and the prescription and his mom decided that, no, he's not going to take that medication and yeah. took him off his medication and six people lost their lives for it, which is absolutely tragic. Now, we've kind of touched on paranoid schizophrenia before, but I am actually going to not mention much about it in this episode because we have introduced a new bonus segment that we are going to do next after this episode and the next episode. So we're going to do something called the mental breakdown, and I'm really excited for it. It's going to be um, pretty much... A single diagnosis out of the DSM-5 that we will cover, talk a little bit about the definition of some of these disorders, and try to do one weekly for you guys. So it'll be about a 15, 20, 25 minute long episode, something that you can listen to on your way to work or while you're doing the dishes or doing some chores or what may have you. A and a uh, Yeah, a quickie. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we love doing these hour-long episodes for you guys. But yeah, we definitely want to talk about the diagnosis and our mental breakdown. So And it'll yeah. help you understand uh, kind of the psyche behind the people that we're talking about. Because I know that I definitely don't want to come across as being sympathetic for the killer. Because right. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I am sympathetic for the mental illness in a mental illness advocating kind of stance. Mm-hmm. Of course, it is all about the victims. And that's why we detail the crimes the way that we do, because everybody's story deserves to be told in a respectful manner. Yeah. However, you know, these mental illnesses are so interesting and they're so predominant to the reason behind these crimes. So maybe once you listen to this mental breakdown, you can listen back to another person that we've touched on that has the same diagnosis or a suspected diagnosis. And then you'll be able to understand a little bit more about the things that they did leading up to their killings that were really telltale signs of those diagnoses. Right. And I think nowadays uh, it's really important to talk about just because we are in a society that's getting to recognize that mental disorders and unique needs are something that, like, I think everybody struggles with and people deserve to be recognized with that as well. I mean, there are plenty of people with mental disorders that do not commit crimes and do not commit violent crimes. And so, um, yeah, we, of course, 
as as much as we want to give recognition to the victims, of course, like it's horrible what happens, but to really talk and bring awareness to people about what schizophrenia is or what bipolar disorder is so that you might not struggle with it, but a loved one that you have might struggle with it and it might be a little easier to empathize with them um, once you get a true understanding of what that disorder is like. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, it's much more fun to listen to us tell you all of the research that we've done than by reading it yourself. I mean, reading is great. Don't get me wrong, but I'd reading is about what? Something. Fundamental. Fundamental. Leave that in there. Fundamental illness. <laughs> Fundamental illness. <laughs> well, thank you guys for sticking with us through that account. Again, I, I do want to say one more time, I know I left out a lot of details in this case. However, I did that on purpose. So if you're going to try to email me or text me and tell me that I missed this and that and the other, I know I did. I just didn't feel comfortable saying that. Also, before we go, I wanted to quickly bring to light, because I completely forgot to mention it in the beginning of the episode... One of our listeners texted me and gave me a little bit of information based on our last case. So oh. I want to... It was Macy. Shout out, Macy. Macy actually uh, works right now as an embalmer. And she is transitioning from an embalmer to a funeral director position right now. So she is just doing the damn thing. But she texted me. First of all, she said, yo, your podcast is dope and all cows. So I was like, <laughs> thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, but she was telling me that she was listening to um, Monica Melissa Patterson episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about how uh, power of a t- she had power of attorney or whatever. Uh, she had actually said in the state of Texas, power of attorney ceases at the time of death. Now, she said she can only speak on behalf of the way that business is conducted at her funeral home. But in order to proceed with disposition, they would need an AOA or an appointment of agent. So mm-hmm. a lot of she said a lot of controlling children want to handle funeral arrangements for their deceased parent when their spouse is still alive. Mm -hmm. She said they say things like, well, I have power of attorney, and she has to tell them that that doesn't mean anything because it ceases at time of death. Interesting. Yeah, so she said, although I have heard of funeral homes letting whoever will pay be in charge of disposition of the body, I would hope the funeral home wouldn't have let that bitch proceed with cremation. (laughs) Yeah, okay, yeah, valid point, Macy, for sure. Well, and it's nice to hear from somebody that kind of has a first-hand account of that. And mom actually said the same thing when our, our grandfather passed away a few months ago and she was having the uh her his spouse was no longer alive either but she was having their that issue with power of attorney they were kind of giving them grief about it yeah like what's power of attorney versus like yeah because i guess power of attorney is over um the estate and things like that but not necessarily what somebody wants to do with their body yeah absolutely and it might be like advocating for the person while when they're not of sound mind or something like that but yeah so thank you macy for that information and thank you for listening it's so good to hear from you and yeah. And uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're liking what we're doing. Yeah. Once again, guys, you know you can always text us if you have our numbers. We're not gonna give out our numbers, but uh, <laughs> any friends or family that are listening for sure, um, reach out or Instagram. Insta- Instagram is a great way to get a hold of us. Uh, email, of course, which is well, our Instagram is at diagnosing a killer, and then email is diagnosing a killer at gmail.com. There we go. We and also that... have a Twitter, which is uh, at killer diagnosis. We do have our Patreon set up once again. It's uh, patreon.com slash diagnosing a killer. If you like what we're doing and you want us to continue to do it and you think we sound great, then please, please donate if you feel so inclined. We want to make stickers. Oh, yeah, we're going to make stickers. And <laughs> honestly, I think that we may. When, if it gets to the point where we're, you know, monetizing and doing good things, we may start uh, sending out gifts to our patrons. Yeah, so. maybe some merch package. Little goodies. Packages. Mm-hmm. Or, it yeah. is spooky season, so we could do Ooh, a lot of stuff with that's that. True. So, Well, thank you all for listening. We hope you come back and uh, look forward to doing the mental breakdown.
Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned for the mental breakdown, guys. All right. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.